0: By Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down. Conversion you got the game on. Yep, on the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't the say the score. And up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come on, out of the gun. who's winning? Rightfuls towards the right corner. Complete to Vandercooi, who steps across the plane.
1: Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original "Say the Damn Score" podcast, part of the "Say the Damn Score" podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson.
0: Welcome to episode 115 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on the social media outlet of your choice. I'm here recording in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota, and in Minnesota, we are still very much under a stay-at-home order due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which my wife and Sarah and I follow as close as possible. We want to remain safe and keep everybody else safe as well. But this week has thrown me a personal curveball on top of that. With everyone trying to quarantine themselves to avoid catching the coronavirus, I'm having problems with a different virus. I actually caught a case of shingles, which is the reactivation of the chickenpox virus, which I learned never actually leaves your body once you get it as a kid, and it can remanifest itself in the form of an extremely painful rash on the ribcage in my case, and I learned quickly that it is quite painful. I tried to tough it out for a little while, but eventually I set up a video doctor's appointment And in the middle of this coronavirus hysteria, I'm now on antiviral medication for a completely different reason. For those of you wondering, if you're listening to this in time, the medication is working and the pain level has dropped considerably, but I will be extremely happy when it's gone for good. That's the bad news, but the good news is that, as I previously hinted at on this podcast, we have some really good episodes coming up, because many sportscasters just don't have anything else to do. I've recorded episodes with George Grand, who was the longtime voice of the Cincinnati Reds and was the very first anchor on the very first Sports Center on ESPN. I also recorded an episode with Chuck Cooperstein that will come soon. He's the voice of the Dallas Mavericks. And I don't want to jinx it just yet because it's not officially recorded, but I have a time scheduled with one of the best analysts in the business, in any sport in the very near future. So I'm really excited to share that with you. And one of the reasons that you should follow us on social media is because we decided which episode was going to be played today via a Twitter poll. Follow me at radio underscore Logan, and you could have some input on which episode is released in what order. Uh, That is what we did. I asked if You guys wanted to hear from an NBA or an NHL guest, and the overwhelming majority wanted the NHL, which is why I'm ecstatic to be talking today with Pete Weber, the voice of the Nashville Predators since day one of the franchise. And Pete, what are you doing right now? Let's just start there while everyone's supposed to stay inside.
1: Well, I've been trying to get uh, prepared so I can, even though we've been given a 90-day extension... I would like to get my income taxes done before the early deadline and not needing uh, to do anything, you know, wacky like a file for an extension, which I've had to do the last 10 years. Uh, and uh, sort of uh, also brushing up on what's going on in elsewhere in the world right now and checking in with my friends around the NHL. So I, I think I've been uh, pretty darn busy and very happy to report about my Buddy John Forslund, who had to self-quarantine for a while in his home outside Raleigh, the voice of the Carolina Hurricanes, because he happened to have the misfortune of being in the Detroit hotel room immediately after after Rudy Gobert. So they figured he should probably isolate himself, and he just finally emerged from his basement yesterday.
0: You said learning things from around the world. What are some of the things you've been doing research on or... Or learning? Is it just about the COVID-19 outbreaks, or are you looking up the history of Egypt or other just random things?
1: <laughs> so I haven't been looking up too much about the history of Egypt, but one other thing that I have been doing, uh, and it, it is uh, binge-watching various shows off Netflix, and I am just about to wrap up my second go-through, not all in this period of time, but my second go-through of the series, West Wing. And uh, so we already got to the episode last night where we found out that the actor playing Leo, uh, Leo McGarry, had passed away, and they were finishing out his scenes in the series in this, the last season of that. And also, I've I've run through the Magnificent Mrs. Maisel. That is, I'm up to date on it now. I've gone through all the episodes of that. So I love to go through old history Uh, pieces that are on netflix and on amazon video Uh, and i also happen to really enjoy rewatching various innings of ken burns baseball series
0: i generally try to keep this as evergreen as possible so we're not going to talk for this entire time about everything that is going on with all the wildness and with the lack (laughs) of sports i should say not in sports but what do you know at this time on what is it today They all blur together the March March 24th. 24th. What do you know about uh, what's going to happen as far as uh, the NHL? Are they still just currently indefinitely postponed? Uh, What have you been told?
1: As we speak, general managers are holding a conference call about tactics uh, to be used. when. And I think everybody's saying when, not if, uh, play resumes. And I think one of the biggest things that now has been removed from the NHL's worry is the postponement of the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo until next year, which means NBC will be free and clear to carry NHL coverage, perhaps even beyond the uh, anticipated opening of this Olympic Games on July 24.
0: And obviously, I don't want to speculate too much, but if you're doing those games in potentially empty or limited fan base arenas, do you see your role as announcer increasing in its importance?
1: It might increase, but one thing else, I might be uh, unconsciously auditioning for a golf announcing job because we'll, since everybody will be able to hear everybody, we might be more like those guys next to the 18th Green at Augusta National who <laughs> seem to speak barely louder than a whisper. Uh, I already talked to one of my friends, Don Stevens, who formerly, if you could envision this, was radio voice of the World Team Tennis, San Diego Friars. Now, the Rochester Americans would have had a, a fanless game on the first weekend of all of this in Cleveland against the Monsters, and he said he had recurring nightmares because he remembered doing World Team Tennis, and once were Betty Stova was getting set to serve for the friars and she asked the linesman if he could please relay the message would the san diego announcer please not speak during my service so uh those are the sorts of things that we had, i had talked to ryan johansson of the predators and i thought we were going to have one of those games uh the saturday when all of this started in columbus where he said i'm going to be able to hear everything you say way up there and i go well I'll be able to hear everything you say way down there. So we better turn our mics down.
0: Have you ever had that happen before? I know I have. We were in a just an absolutely empty gym somewhere in central Missouri and uh-huh. covering a really small college that did not draw any fan base. And there, I think it was during Christmas break. So there was like 10 people in the gym. And I did a player was at the free throw line. And I said, so-and-so struggling from the free throw this line this year, shooting 48% (laughs) or something. And she missed both of them, proceeded to give me a dirty look and gave me a hard time on the bus ride back saying that I messed up her free throw shooting. And I say, well, you were already only shooting 48% because we had a a pretty cordial relationship. But have you ever had that happen at any level on your path, which we'll go over here soon?
1: The closest probably would have been the lower attended games in the Continental Basketball Association when I helped out my buddy who bought a team from Las Vegas, the Silvers, and moved them to Albuquerque. He was my old baseball boss, Pat McKernan, and uh, I went out and helped him and did some games on the road in Reno where I really thought I had gone to a Catholic Mass. That's how quiet it was. So, it was one of those things where you turn up your headphone amplifier as loudly as you can so you don't try to overshout anything, and you could hear absolutely everything that was going on in the gym.
0: So, your first play-by-play experience was as a high school student when you were in the press box working for a newspaper. And you just happened to have, he had to go to the, the broadcaster had to go to the bathroom, he just handed you the mic. Uh, Take us through that moment and what was going through your head as he's like, yeah, you just need to do this. Here you go.
1: Well, prior to all of that, my brother and I used to do our impressions. This will date us uh, of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley doing the NBC Nightly News back when it was only a 15 minute long national newscast. And uh, he would say, good night, Chet. And I'd say, good night. And uh, good night from NBC News. Uh, David Brinkley, every now and then, still slips into my cadence uh, when I announce. But my high school senior year of high school, I pinched a nerve in my neck, and I wasn't going to be able to play football that year. So I signed on with the uh, Galesburg, Illinois Register Mail and took uh, calls on high school game nights, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, even though on Saturday nights we would do it because at that point in time, the Register Mail did not have a Sunday edition. Uh, They since have modernized greatly. But ultimately, the sports editor sent me out to cover some games as well. And it was my high school, Costa High School, playing Deer Creek Mackinac near Peoria. And I went over there, and the guys doing the radio play-by-play and the color were the morning team on the radio station. So here it is, game night on a Friday, and let's be fair, the, the gentleman was 50, 55 years old at the time. He needed some coffee to get going again. But coffee makes you get going again. So that's how he ended up handing the microphone to me. And I filled in for Jim Swickert for about uh, 10 minutes or so. And then the thought bit me, hey, this this is something I think I might be able to do. So when I went to college at Notre Dame, I got involved in the campus radio station and went on from there.
0: When he handed you that microphone, and maybe it's long enough that you can't remember anymore, what was your <laughs> immediate thought going through your head when he's like, hey, you just need to take over. You've never done this before. Uh, you've, obviously, you're involved in media, so maybe you've thought about it. But what was your reaction at that exact moment in time, if you can remember?
1: Yeah, my I can remember. And it was just, hey, I used to take my father's dictaphone and sit in front of the television set and do my own play-by-play on the various uh, games I would see, and realizing I was doing radio and not television, so that I had to describe, and uh, that turned out to have been uh, perfect preparation for me to do that. So I didn't have, I, I didn't have time to think and say, oh no, 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 I can't do that. I just had to grab it and go with it.
0: Growing up, you were also a very avid reader. I read that you subscribed to five daily newspapers as a high school student, as a high school student, I don't know if I ever read anything but the occasional (laughs) sports page. And what was it about that medium? I love to read and I still do, but I didn't necessarily read for information at that age. What about you uh, were drawn, was drawn to that many newspapers?
1: Well, it was our, our family really subscribing to them and I was the beneficiary of it. And essentially it was me diving into the sports sections of those papers, too. Uh, We would have the Gillsburg Register-Mail, the Peoria Journal-Star, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago American, which later became Chicago Today before folding on, as I recall, Friday, August the 13th, 1974. And then we would have, on occasion, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch of the Globe Democrat, available, too, growing up in West Central Illinois. And I just wanted, I I grew up an avid St. Louis Cardinals fan. And you go, well, you're in Illinois. How, how could you be a Cardinals fan? Well, it's, it was easy. We're in that middle area of the state. And I also had seen what years of being a Cubs fan had done to cause anguish in my father. And aside from that, I absolutely loved the character, the man, Stan Musial. And so that was what attracted me in that direction.
0: And you grew up in Galesburg, Illinois, which is not far from Peoria, which was right. really a, one of the maybe – unknown cradles of broadcasters. A lot of big-time broadcasters have come out of that area. Uh, off the top of my head, I read the list, but I don't remember them all. Jack Brickhouse, Chick Hearn. Uh, yep. What is it about that area that lends itself to developing broadcasters? Is it just a weird anomaly, or is it just the fact that you know you had great announcers in the area that you could model yourself after? What was it about that Peoria area that lent itself to becoming a cradle of broadcasting, so to speak?
1: Yeah, Vince Lloyd came out of there. Mark Holtz, the late Mark Holtz, came out of there. And Chick Hearn, oddly enough, was the guy who hired me and really gave me my first big break to come to Southern California and work for Jack Kent Cooks, California Sports Incorporated, on the L.A. Kings broadcast. And subsequently, when uh, Pat Riley had to leave the Lakers booth to become an assistant coach, I filled in for about a month with Chick on the Lakers as well. Uh, what it is about the area, I really don't know what to tell you. And the names of broadcasters that came out of there keep popping up to me. Bill King, a long time in the in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Bob Starr, who was one of the best football announcers I ever heard, who also did a wonderful job on baseball. But Bob, I remember him as voice of the, the Rams in Los Angeles, of the St. Louis Football Cardinals, and the New England Patriots. He used to tell me great stories trying to compare notes with my time in Buffalo about times when the Patriots would come to Buffalo and they needed a police escort to get out of War Memorial Stadium to get back to the airport and fly back to New England. So actually, they're the Boston Patriots at that point in time. And uh, those announcers, Tom Kelly, who was a longtime voice of the USC Trojans football and basketball, I got to work with him on the old on-TV in Los Angeles, too, on a few Lakers telecasts. So there is some sort of magic there. I don't don't know if we can say it's the water. I don't think we can say – well, maybe we can because, after all, the Hiram Walker distillery is right there, Logan.
0: (laughs) What – just because you are in Peoria where I'm guessing you could get KMOX, you could probably get stations out of Chicago so you could listen to Cubs, you could listen to the Cardinals – You could listen to a lot of talented broadcasters. Who would you say influenced you into developing your love for radio broadcasting?
1: Without question, Harry Carey and Jack Buck. And then for hockey, because the St. Louis Blues had not yet begun, the guy I listened to all the time and was greatly influenced by, Lloyd Pettit on the Chicago Blackhawks. And I was so lucky uh, when I came here in 1998 from the very outset, the Predators farm team has been the Milwaukee Admirals. And when I moved here in 98, who owned the Admirals? Lloyd Pettit. So during uh, training camp period and exhibition games, I'd have the chance to pick his brain, to talk with him and uh, try not to act too much like Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live. Remember, Remember when Bobby Hull scored his 58th goal? Boy, that was cool. Oh, I hate myself when I do that. But that's that was the sort of uh, entree that we had. And those influencers, and i got to tell you, I'd go across the dial at night, had a Zenith radio on my nightstand, and I would get WCCO from Minnesota and get the Twins games, get WTMJ from Milwaukee and get the old Milwaukee Braves games with our old Gillespie and so on, uh, get Uh, go to Detroit, and uh, on WJR, there's Ernie Harwell uh, working on the Tigers. LW in Cincinnati. After a while, they took it over. But I even remember listening to the Reds games in the mid-'60s on the old WSAI. And uh, that was back when you had Jim Maloney take two no-hitters into extra innings that 1965 season, one loss on a home run by Johnny Lewis of the Mets, and the other one on a home run by the Reds' Chico Cardinals at uh, Wrigley Field over the Chicago Cubs. I'd even listen to minor league baseball off WBAP 830 in Dallas, which then ultimately would become the home of the uh, brand-new Texas Rangers in the early 1970s. So I scanned that dial at night, and I don't think youngsters get that much of a chance anymore, if they even need it, because we do have satellite radio and uh, the Internet to bring it all in. But I kind of miss going across that analog dial at night and hearing those various sound effects as you try to tune in uh, a distant station, and it would sound like somebody was in a club playing cymbals on the side as you're trying to fine-tune to get in there and that get that best representation of that signal.
0: And you're, of course, as it's pretty widely known, a Notre Dame alum. And yep. I looked up that your major was modern languages. It wasn't mass communications. It wasn't journalism. It was modern languages. What did you pick that for? Did you initially (laughs) want to do something else and then kind of decide to switch to broadcasting later? Was it always your intention? I don't really even know what modern languages means. I can formulate a guess, but I'm just curious uh, what your experience and what that thought process was.
1: Here's what it was my family. is German. And uh, my grandfather came over in the late 19th century from the Black Forest, from a little town, a little bird called Niederwinden, And uh, he and his brothers escaping Germany at that time. And I always felt proud of that heritage. So I had an opportunity as a sophomore at Notre Dame to spend my sophomore year, my entire sophomore year, at the University of Innsbruck in Austria, And so uh, all my classes, minus American literature, were taught in German and uh, picked up on that very quickly. We had an immersion course my freshman year and then further immersion for six weeks as we went to Austria in August of uh, 2000. And uh, that was a very, very special time in my life. There were 46 other members of Notre Dame St. Mary's class who went over there, all of whom. We still pretty much stay in touch, and that is great. And my travels with the Nashville Predators oftentimes puts me in the towns with them, so we can get together and reminisce a little bit. Not that we tell old stories or anything like that.
0: <laughs> Give us an old story from your time in <laughs> Austria.
1: Okay, my father and mother came over uh, at Christmas time, seventy seventy one. My freshman year at Notre Dame was the first year Notre Dame had decided to go back to bowl games. So they took on Texas in the Cotton Bowl. Me and my family were driving down to Dallas from Galesburg when all of a sudden an ice storm had hit and essentially closed off the state of Oklahoma. And we were driving, so there was no other way to get through there. They had us turn around and go back home. Well, the next year, my sophomore year, lo and behold, Notre Dame and Texas again in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, And this time I was overseas so my father and I climbed into my Volkswagen and drove up on a mountainside uh, outside my grandparents' uh, stead, if you will, in Niedervinden uh, in the Black Forest, and were able, thanks to American Forces Radio, to tune in that game. And I believe we were listening uh, somewhere in the vicinity of nine ten o'clock at night for its start, uh, European time. So uh, that was uh, part of all of that. And then the real reason... Because I started out as an American studies major, uh, and the real reason I changed was so that I could broadcast or leave school early, uh, graduate early, and uh, go take a a broadcasting job in my hometown. One came up, they were looking for a sports director. So by reallocating all of those courses that I took in German, I all of a sudden had more than enough to graduate midterm, 72, 73, and... uh, start my foray into broadcasting.
0: Have you ever broadcast a game in another language other than English?
1: Uh, No, but I've certainly been around in the National Hockey League, enough French-language broadcasters, (laughs) and in the Stanley Cup final three years ago, right next to me in Pittsburgh was the Chinese television crew who kept leaning around the uh, divider and asking me some questions. And I'd hear things like, Pete, Pete, that is no penalty. What are they doing down there? Uh, And then uh, when we were at home, I would have the Finnish broadcasters who kept asking me questions about their pecker, Rene, the Predator's goaltender. So uh, I had no idea that when I declared modern languages as my major, how much it could actually help me later on. For example, um, we have a couple of Swiss players, Yannick Weber. And uh, Roman Yossi, who I hope wins the uh, Norris Trophy as best defenseman in the league this year, but I know the year is not yet up. And uh, when their uh, family members come over, I'm able to help them around because I can speak to them in German.
0: You mentioned that your first position out of college that you switched majors so you could leave early for was at WGIL in your hometown of Galesburg. And I always find it really interesting how people get that first foot in the door out of school. Uh, Was it a previous relationship from living there, or was it just an open application process? How did that come about?
1: Actually, the general manager of the station, Roger Coleman, knew me, knew my family, and he asked me if I would be interested before I ever knew there was an opening. And then we just went on from there, and I believe that was in uh, probably uh, early November, when he asked me, so I quickly went to the Dean of Students at Notre Dame and clarified my hours and how they could be allocated. And uh, the dean we always used to refer to was Dr. No, but he said yes to me, and I was then able to take over, and I, I moved uh, back to Galesburg in mid-December of uh, 1973. As a matter of fact, it was the day that, who was I to know, that later on, that was the day O.J. Simpson uh, broke the 2,000-yard barrier at the NFL.
0: If Doctor No had said no, what do you (laughs) think you would have done? Because I've talked to a lot of sportscasters on this who got that first job and it was they left college to take it because that was more valuable than anything they were going to learn in a classroom at that point to get that experience. What do you think you would have done in that hypothetical situation?
1: I think I would have tried to just uh, get uh, more work. I had done a little bit of part-time work at the uh, NBC affiliate in town, which later I did go to. Uh, in 1974, 74 through 76, and I broadcast uh, Notre Dame hockey for them.
0: And that is the next thing on your path, as you mentioned, a weekend reporter covering Notre Dame hockey. Uh, how did that come about after your time at uh, in Galesburg? And just kind of quick cliff notes version before we get into the yeah. the big jumps that you make here and a couple couple moves down the line.
1: Already loved hockey. And I had gone to, I mean, Notre Dame had started uh, D1 hockey uh, my freshman year. And as it turned out, being a huge Blackhawks fan, as I had mentioned previously talking with Lloyd Pettit, Tom Ballinger was the voice of the Irish Hockey Club, and he resigned. He was retiring to run a restaurant uh, just over the border in the state of Michigan. And so I called to interview for the job, and they said, sure, come on in. And then when I went for that appointment, the guy who was supposed to interview me, he had resigned as well. He had taken off. So I'm sitting there in the reception area of WNDU, radio and television. And uh, first of all, just to give you a time and place reference here, on the monitor in the uh, reception, they said uh, this just in, Henry Aaron has just tied Babe Ruth hitting his 714th home run today in Cincinnati off Jack Billingham. So had that little bit of exultation, and then a man named Chuck Lindster came out, who was the director of photography for many Notre Dame projects. He interviewed me and set me up. Okay, you can do Notre Dame hockey, and you can run operations here on the weekend on the radio side and do the television sports. I mean, how could have I asked for anything better than that?
0: You probably couldn't have, which is why I'm sure you didn't. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly.
0: After that point of being in Illinois and kind of in your or in Illinois, Indiana kind of in that comfort zone area you start going all over the country you went to buffalo you went to la you went to seattle and then back to buffalo before eventually ending up where you're in nashville uh, just i want to i don't want to cover that entire path okay. you went to buffalo first <laughs> and then started in los angeles as a color commentator take us Tell us how that happened because you weren't doing, I don't think, pro sports play by play at that time in Buffalo, but you ended up getting involved with somebody completely on the opposite side of the country. That's generally an unlikely scenario. How
1: did it play out? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, I was blanketing the marketplace, sending out tapes back in those days when you sent out tapes and didn't send out uh, cyber links to your work. And I had gotten a letter back from the Kings. In the uh, summer of 78 from the general manager, excuse me, George McGuire, who said, I'm sorry, we have no openings right now. Lo and behold, about 10 days later, I got a phone call from the director of broadcasting at the forum, Chick Hearn, who said, well, we've got an opening now uh, on our hockey broadcast with Bob Miller. Would you be interested? And uh, I had to uh, stifle my laughter and I said, sure, I'd be interested. He goes, okay. And then he mentioned I was going to give me a raise of about. Well, now I was working in public broadcasting, so I think the raise should have been understood with also moving to Los Angeles. And I was ready to move right there. I know one of my friends was taping a talk show on the station for later air. And uh, when it did air later, you heard a big whoopee from me through the studio window. uh, And I was ready to go on my way. And as I as I did, I go out. Great opportunity with the L.A. Kings. Jack Kent Cooke, who was the owner at that time, was much more into hiring broadcasters than he was former athletes as his color commentators, certainly for hockey. And because of that, that was a huge break in and of itself. But then, talking about not hiring an ex-athlete, I realized, to move on in my profession, I think I'm going to have to do it as a play-by-play guy. And I had done so much play-by-play of college sports. Uh, in Buffalo. We had, you know, St. Bonaventure, Niagara, Canisius College, Buffalo, and Buffalo State, where I did all those games for a couple of years. That was really like a fast track advancement for you. If you read Malcolm Gladwell and the outliers, he talks about how many reps you need. I think I got most of them in the two years there, getting ready to move on. And so I went to Los Angeles, realized I should be doing play-by-play, studied under Two of the greatest play-by-play men ever, Bob Miller, who I just talked to the other day, and the, unfortunately, the late Chick Hearn, who's been gone now, what, 18 years. And those people showed me how to prepare to be a professional play-by-play announcer. And then I had another influence listening on the radio there in L.A. His name was Scully. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he did a pretty good job on the Dodgers broadcast. So that prompted me to look and Chick Hearn helped me get a job with the Seattle Sonics, who were starting something new then, a regional sports network, the Sonic Super Channel. I was there with them for a year, then it turned out they just wanted someone as a stopgap until they could get someone locally out of a contract and hire him. So that prompted me uh, to move back to Buffalo and uh, seek all the things that I did there.
0: I want to go back to working under Chick Hearn and Bob Miller. And of course, you're going to pick things up from the greats of the, of the industry just through osmosis as a color commentator. Mm-hmm. But did you do anything else to stay sharp as a play-by-play guy when you weren't technically getting those reps?
1: Well, you know what I would do oftentimes? There would be a space at the top of the uh, press box area in the forum where I would take my tape recorder on Lakers game nights. Uh, And if you would want, I could send you some of those samples uh, and uh, tape Lakers' play-by-play. And then I would do uh, the uh, King's play-by-play was just something I would do mentally as Bob was calling it and hoping I was still sharp enough to be able to respond when he left me an opening in the broadcast. Uh, In those days, the uh, King's broadcast, when they were on television, it was 20 to 25 simulcasts a year on uh, KHJ-TV, now uh, KCAL 9, in Southern California. So to stay sharp, I was constantly looking at other things. And then the Dodgers, the Angels, and the Padres would leave an open booth for me, and I would bring a mixer and a recorder and all of that and do practice baseball play-by-play. And ultimately, that or those recordings got me the job in Albuquerque in 1981.
0: You mentioned that Albuquerque position, and you also you said you did baseball, but you also did the CBA a little bit. And I've talked to a couple people who have been involved at some point in the CBA, and the stories they have from that <laughs> league are just insane. And I just want to say, give us a CBA story from something that, something weird that happened as part of that league.
1: Well, it's weird, and I'll tell you, Pat McKernan, he bought the team from Las Vegas and moved it to Albuquerque in midseason, and I believe it was uh, February of 83, he called, hey, can you come out here and help me finish the schedule? You'll get back to Buffalo in time to open up the Bison's baseball season. So I said, okay, I'd be happy to help you out. And then when we get out there, I'm uh, you know working where we go to, uh, let me see, we went to Reno, and that was where uh, Kenny Nat came scrambling over for a loose ball, and the sole of his shoe just missed my face and headset. Uh, And uh, those were some funny, funny times. Norm Ellenberger, who was renowned for his time with University of New Mexico Lobos, was the coach. And you want to talk about owning something? He owned the basketball court that they used at the Coliseum in, La- in uh, Albuquerque to play the games on. So I-, I don't know of how many other coaches actually own the courts that their teams play on, but uh, some have them named after them. But Norm Ellenberger owned the darn court.
0: <laughs> you went back to Buffalo and according to what I read, it looked like you were able to build basically a big freelance portfolio. You worked for the Buffalo Bisons. You did uh, things for the Sabres and the Bills and Probably just about every other team that you could get within a uh, within shouting distance of while you were there. Uh, yep. I'm trying to do that right now. I moved to Minneapolis about a year and a half ago. I don't know if we talked about that in Winston-Salem or not. But uh, what were the keys to finding freelance work in a market that you weren't necessarily initially familiar with?
1: Well, I was familiar with it from my earlier time before I moved to Los Angeles, and that helped a great deal. That period of time from 76 through 78, doing all those college games and becoming familiar with the uh, sports executives in town uh, helped me out a great deal in that regard. Uh, Paul Whelan of the Buffalo Sabres is the guy who kept me involved in hockey, brought me in to uh, host the Cablecast with Mike Robitaille. Uh, So we'd be in our little studio between the two team dressing rooms at the auditorium in Buffalo and working there. Uh, Bison Baseball was a a friend of mine, bought the broadcast rights just after the team had been purchased by Rich Products uh, in the winter of 82, 83. And we went on the air on uh, a daytime only station at the outset. And that got to be a little bit difficult because... All of a sudden, uh, TriStar Productions moved into our ballpark and decided to film The Natural there. So many of our games were delayed to much later at night. So we got onto a country station that was happy to lease the time to us. And it just sort of went on from there. It was, it was uh, without question, a string of uh, fortuitous events that just happened to work out my way.
0: Did you get to watch any of the filming of The Natural?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the way, the natural, the uh, concluding scene was just on uh, the other night on one of the uh, movie services. And I watched that again, and I was there for that scene where he hits the climactic home run. uh, The Knights win the pennant, beating the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, I knew the pitcher who threw the uh, pitch, Chris Raybaum, a former uh, Cleveland Indians draft choice. My friend, Duke McGuire was all the time sitting next to Robert Redford in the dugout, Kevin Lester, who was the catcher as well, doing all of that. So I was around for quite a bit of that. And one reason I wanted to spend time around the ballpark, the director of photography for the movie, Craig Deneau, he was dating this young lady named Morgan Fairchild at the time. And everybody wanted to see Morgan Fairchild in shorts and a tube top. <laughs>
0: Did you try to, like, run around behind the camera at any point and try to get in the movie or anything like that?
1: No, because they were very strict in terms of period uh, wardrobes to be worn. And I, quite frankly, as old and as uh, stodgy as I'm accused of being, I had nothing that really represented 1939 on. So uh, I I stayed away from the lens.
0: And your final move after Buffalo to where you currently are with the Nashville Predators. And it all started because you thought it might be more convenient for family get-togethers to live in Nashville as composed
1: to Buffalo. Yeah, my wife's family. And I had met my wife while I was doing uh, Sabres Cable back in 84, 85. I met her at the Odd. I uh, just happened to get introduced to her. And her family, though she was brought up in Columbus, Ohio, her family had moved. Her father ran a, uh, uh, an electronic switch company that became known as SEMCO, and he got tired of Ohio taxes, so he made himself a free agent, an unrestricted free agent, and looked for somebody else to lure him, and ultimately he got lured to East Tennessee and uh, initially went over to Johnson City and then moved to Knoxville. And then I'm sitting upstairs in our home in Buffalo, In my home office, and this keep in mind, this is 1997, and I had this great Internet service. Of course, it was still dial-up, and I was going on for information on Prodigy, the Prodigy Internet service, and all of a sudden a story popped up. It probably took four minutes to load on the screen, but a story popped up that the NHL was awarding uh, provisional franchises to begin play and, and roll out slowly in 98 to Nashville, Atlanta to Columbus, and to St. Paul, and so Nashville was going to start first, and so I hollered downstairs to Claudia, and I go, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could just drive like two, two and a half hours, rather than 10 or 12 for these gatherings? She said, yes, it would. Let's see if we can. So I located the founding owner, Craig Leopold, in Racine, Wisconsin, and I FedExed my materials to him the next day or the day after And then just kept following up for about a year. And another break that I had in that regard, the uh, expansion draft to form the team in 1998 and the entry draft for the league were both held in our building in Buffalo. So I could still be working in my regular job at that point in time and make the contacts that I needed. I did. And by August, I had agreed on a deal and moved here for the first day of the first training camp, September 12, 1998.
0: So what was your your process of making those contacts? You just go up and say, "Hi, I'm Pete Weber. I'm interested in being your play-by-play voice. I'm here in Buffalo." Uh, did you have to be a little bit more delicate than that? How did you find the right people at those drafts and to make those contacts?
1: By that point in time, a friend of mine was already on the inside. Jerry Helper who had been in the public relations department for the Sabres when I was doing Sabres Cable, had been named, and the title was not exactly this at that point in time, but director of communications for the new team. And uh, he was my uh, my booster inside the front office. And so I got together with everybody. in in the context of doing stories on the expansion draft, uh, got a chance to Remeet meet David Poyle, the general manager who I had covered when he was with the Washington Capitals and, uh, was overseas when I was at the Sarajevo winter Olympic games in 84. Uh, so we talked a lot about those times and then Jack Diller, who was the incoming team president, uh, outstanding broadcast executive from Madison square garden and Craig Leopold, the owner, uh, both guys with great senses of humor and that helped out a great deal. And, uh, So we just pursued it from then on. And then on the 4th of July, that summer of 98, I was in Knoxville at my in-laws, and I borrowed my father-in-law's car and drove on over to Nashville, hoping I could nail things down. And while we didn't nail things down that day, I think we came very close to getting it all done.
0: Being the original voice of a team that was in expansion franchise, I was once the voice of a college that it was their first year adding football and just seeing Ah. a lot of the challenges that that coaching staff had to go through that you would never think of, like uh, making sure there were enough pads and learning all those, all the little things that you take for granted normally. I'm assuming it was a little more organized at the professional level, but give us a couple of the chaos stories of being around a team in its infancy.
1: Well, the best thing, and they can show you videos of picture day at training camp at the arena where the guys, it was almost like uh, they were doing mug shots and they were holding up uh, pieces of paper with their names on them so these could be uh, correctly identified later on in the files. And, of course, you can crop the photo away from all of that. Uh, it was getting on to an a airplane to go for a preseason game in Pensacola and then going back to the airport when that game in Pensacola was over and the plane wasn't there, finding out that they needed to pick up another team. So we waited till like two o'clock in the morning when our game was over at 10.30 and everybody's at the airport by 11 to fly back to Nashville. Things like that would happen, but uh, they were so much fun. Uh, I, I just, and the fact of the matter is, They wanted the Predators' first game to be the first time they actually played in the arena down at 501 Broadway. So there were a lot of dry run-throughs that had to be gotten through for the game operations people and everything. There was one time for, I think it was for Fan Appreciation Night, at the end of that first year, they were giving away a boat. They forgot to see whether or not the boat could make it through the Zamboni door onto the ice, and it got stuck. (laughs) So things like that.
0: Uh, You also worked a simulcast for the first several years of uh, their existence. How do you adjust your broadcast when you're not going out to just TV or radio, but both simultaneously?
1: Yeah, well, it is uh, a question of language. And my preparation for that actually were those 20 to 25 simulcasts we had in Los Angeles with the Kings. Uh, they didn't break away and have two separate broadcasts until the late 80s, early 90s after when Gretzky came to L.A. So it was, I would never say, as you can see here, I would totally avoid that. And I was coaching Terry Chris to do the exact same. And I was, and here's the other thing you have to realize. When you're on a cable cast, there is a restricted audience by itself right there. Uh, they have to pay a subscription fee to get it. It's not like it's on over-the-air television. So I think I could say fairly that I slanted things more toward radio because everybody could get the radio broadcast. Yeah, we were on a 100,000-watt station that just blanketed Middle Tennessee, and uh, that was great for us. So, But it really, if you just are careful with your language, you don't have to worry that much about the simulcast.
0: Do you think that simulcast works better for hockey just because you need to do more description because the puck moves so quickly and the players are moving so quickly that you really need to identify them sometimes anyway on tv
1: i agree with that i agree with that premise totally logan
0: all right so you also were part of the lockout season and (laughs) since right now it's i imagine there's some similarities with no hockey and uh At least you could leave your house at that time. But what did you do during the lockout season? How much of a financial burden did that put on your shoulders? Um, Just tell us what happened when the, the last time that work went away for you.
1: Well, I still got paid, though I would defer the payment to help out the team until later. So I still had some cash coming in. I picked up a couple of podcasts that we were able to make. Uh, one on minor league baseball called This Week at the Yard. And then the second year was This Week in the Minor Leagues. And we did a Southern Pro Football uh, podcast as well that I got paid for by a record label to do that. So those were among the things that I did. Plus, I would fill in on quite a few uh, Nashville Sounds broadcasts, the AAA affiliate here at that time of the Pittsburgh. or was, the Pittsburgh, was the, uh, Yeah, it was the Pittsburgh Pirates back then. They've gone through a few uh, affiliation switches since I've been here in town and, uh, which is sort of the way it goes in baseball's minor leagues anyway, uh, except for the teams that are owned by the major league affiliate. So those were the types of things that I did. And I went, uh, to the Ripken minor league experience, both for an article for this week at the yard and for this, for the podcast and, uh sort of reunited with our Bison shortstop from 1995, Billy Ripken, who was a big part of that minor league experience and had a great time going to Staten Island and to Brooklyn and getting all the interviews there.
0: And we've just, I did a really poor job on this podcast for a long time of not getting a lot of hockey broadcasters on here. And since I've moved to Minnesota, I've had opportunities ha. to learn to broadcast hockey and it's been... Uh, let's just say mixed results. There's been some decent moments and there's been some tough ones. And one of the things that I find really difficult, and maybe it's just with some of the vantage point problems that uh, you probably deal with, but maybe not to the extent that you would in some of the ranks that I end up in. But how do you identify goal scores when there's a lot of traffic in front of the net? Do you just say goal and wait until you see the replay if it's tough? Do you Try to do your best. How do you handle those situations when it's hard to see?
1: I will always say who took the shot. And then with the scrums in front, any number of people could have deflected it. And if I'm able lucky enough to see that, I will say I believe it was deflected by let's just say Victor Arvindson. It might have been James Neal, but I believe it was Victor Arvinson. And then we just wait for the official call of the goal and you wouldn't believe how many times they change the scoring on those goals. Maybe you would believe it, but that's just the way I approach it.
0: How do you approach it when you do misidentify someone and they change it and it's not who you thought? Do you just say, actually, it was so-and-so, or move on? Or do you does it I say, you? actually, yeah, I,
1: I, I quickly make whatever correction I can. There's one goal. Oh, it was Scotty Walker in the early years of the Predators franchise. Everybody thought he had a four-goal night, but they had changed one of the goals – what would have been the third goal and not announced it to the crowd. And thus, I didn't have that information either. So, uh, hey, four goals for Scott Walker. Hey, sorry, folks. They had changed one and didn't tell us. You just have to be honest.
0: The other thing about hockey that I have found both challenging and exciting is it's just so fast. And it's hard to necessarily identify the players without memorizing everyone, which is what I eventually started doing. Does your recall and memory is that how you develop that or is that something that you just came to naturally?
1: It helps quite a bit. What also helps uh, at least at the NHL level is the fact that you're able from the various online packages or satellite packages to see the other team play. And you can watch that until you feel you have a good sense of who does what, when, where, why, and work from that. And then I keep a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet uh, spot chart, if you will, but you don't have time to look at that. People ask me, do you use spotters? If we use spotters, the game would pass us by so quickly, it wouldn't be funny. Uh, But that will help me every now and then. If I see the right wing from the third line on the ice, there's a good chance that guy that gave him the puck is the center from that line.
0: When you're on the radio, how do you make time in such a fast, up-tempo sport to A, mix in some of the fun human interest stories that we all love to do and also to make sure your analyst is still involved.
1: Uh, keep the analyst involved at all times. And really, the way the game has been played since the lockout of 0 4 is so quick. They have hastened the pace so much. If you're going to tell stories, you better tell them in pregame or in the intermissions or postgame. You just really... I mean, we don't even have glass breakages anymore to give us time to tell stories in the NHL. Uh, In our early years here, one night we had a glass breakage in each of three periods in San Jose. So that's a little bit different. But now we have uh, improved facilities, and the uh, pace of the game is such that if you're going to try and tell a story, uh, you better hope you get a lot of icing calls. I mean, Vince Gully. Is the greatest storyteller, I think, of them all. And I remember his next year, last year, next to last year, he was telling the story of D Day, and all of a sudden the inning is moving around too quickly. But only Vince Scully could have, I say, ahem, uh, arranged this. There was a foul pop that did not get caught, and that allowed him to finish his story as he finished up. And that's the story of D Day. June 6, 1944, and there's the third out. We'll be back with the bottom of the eighth.
0: How has your preparation process changed as technology and everything has changed? What was it like when you were doing Notre Dame hockey, and what's it like now?
1: Uh, Just tremendously different. I would just try to get, and in college hockey even back then, 74, 75, 76, the uh, schools would all give us line charts. So that would help a great deal. Uh, They all had the media guides, which we would pour through and set up our initial uh, spot boards, if we could. And then we didn't have much background on on the previous games the teams had played, unless Notre Dame had just played Michigan the previous weekend and were going to Ann Arbor for this one. So now we do have that available to us online, on cable, on satellite. And I take advantage of looking at as much of that as time permits.
0: You had a health scare here, actually, in the Twin Cities in 2014, where you yes. suffered a heart attack. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get great care and uh, get back to full strength as quickly as possible. But how does something like that change your perspective both on life and your career?
1: Uh it obviously changes things quite a bit, uh, and it made me because shortly after we finish this, I'll be going back on my recumbent bike to build back up my cardio for a while. But uh, I had already changed my diet quite a bit about a year and a half before that occurred, and uh, it still happened. It was uh, – if you want me to go into a slight detail on that, it was – I was on the elliptical machine in the St. Paul Hotel, and all of a sudden, something I had never experienced before, I had a pins and needles sensation on my jawline going from ear to ear. So I shut it down, went downstairs, showered, changed the clothes for my morning production meeting. And when I got downstairs, the guy said, hey, you don't look so good. So I said, well, I don't feel so well. Now, I, again, the only thing was was that pins and needles sensation. And I was a bit dehydrated. But in the St. Paul Hotel, in those periods of time, you could not adjust, uh, except at your own risk, the thermostat in your room. If you did, you might roast. Uh, well, when I woke up in the morning, I was so dry, and I had a reason. Very quickly, I could see by the readout it was 85 degrees in my room. Now, you being in Minnesota now, I will tell you, outside it was minus 18. So we weren't being too efficient with our use of heating fuel uh, in terms of doing that. So. I went right over the rink just being two blocks away from the St. Paul Hotel. Our trainers, the, Saint, the uh, wild trainers, and then the St. Paul Fire Department EMTs were all there, and I had two EKGs in about 20 minutes, and shortly thereafter was uh, put on a gurney and taken two blocks away to United Hospital and had three stents installed, I, and I believe. So that really hit me at about 7:30 in the morning, and I believe I was already in my recovery room by 9.30, 10 o'clock that morning. So I was already all taken care of. And uh, I was texting friends and family and telling them, A-OK, everybody.
0: <laughs> so how did that change your outlook going forward? How did that just change the way you look at life and, and broadcasting in general?
1: I've always enjoyed what I do. I still enjoy it. Maybe I enjoy it a little bit more. And uh, it hasn't altered things that greatly it's made me a little bit more cognizant about uh, throwing down deep dish pizza and things like that.
0: <laughs> All the good things in life. but Yeah. <laughs> um, you're well known for getting your personality and your quirky sense of humor mixed into your broadcast. How do you do that without doing it too much?
1: And I don't know. Maybe I do. Uh, but I just uh, try to be a little bit careful of that. But I also feel that uh, broadcasters who are not themselves, and this was something Vince Scully talked about. He talked about how in his early days with Red Barber in Brooklyn, Red asked him to not listen to other broadcasters anymore. Because he said the most important thing you bring into that broadcast booth is you. Be yourself. And that was the thing that has stuck with me since then. And I, uh, I hope I have, a, shall we say, enough reserve not to go overboard that way. Sometimes I feel like things do run a little bit muck, but as I've gotten older, I think I have more control of that.
0: You've been the seven-time Tennessee Sportscaster of the Year. Nobody gets into this for awards, but I'm sure they feel nice all the same. What do those awards and that recognition mean to you?
1: It means a lot, particularly coming from this state, where for the longest time, the only people winning it were football announcers. And uh, football is a religion here. And to think that I have been able to do that really means an awful lot to me. And to have talked about it with the guy who was the voice of the University of Tennessee volunteers, John Ward, when I got here. And to be able to induct him into the Tennessee Radio Hall of Fame in our first class in 2012 was really a privilege. But there's a great deal of, uh, shall we say, appreciation for what the other does here now. And I think uh, that is what makes me feel the best.
0: Have you ever met the bowler, Pete Weber?
1: As a matter of fact, I have. And uh, here's one story about that because it was a little text going back and forth last night with one of my former coworkers in Buffalo. Uh, Pete was on the pro bowler stop in Buffalo when I was still working there. And the headline of the Buffalo news came out that that week's stop was going to be a little bit different because the headline stated Pete Weber suspended for drug and alcohol abuse. (laughs) And of course my baseball people said, well, that's too bad to hear this. No, no, no. This is the bowler. This is the bowler. So later on I ended up, uh, at Empire Sports Network, doing a TV talk show, and when the Pro Bowler tour stopped in nearby Rochester, New York, I went over and spent the day with him over there, Pete Weber. With Pete Weber, after I moved here to Nashville, there uh, Larry Schmidt, who would own the baseball team, the Nashville Sounds, here for years from '78 until the early 2000s, he decided to go into the bowling alley business, and he had a uh, a pro bowler tour stop in one of his uh, emporiums in Louisville, about two and a half hours north of here, and asked me if I would come up and bowl against Pete Weber in the pro-am. Two things. I am a horrendous bowler, even after living all those years in Buffalo, where the bowling alleys are so well considered, they have stained glass windows. Uh, And number two, thankfully, I had a Predators game to do that night. We would have done it. So that was my graceful way out of that.
0: (laughs) The just a couple other little things I want to touch base on before we get into our final questions is you're known as being a little bit of a practical joker. There's a well-known episode of you and Bob Miller uh, kind of uh, messing with a guy sitting in between you on an airplane pretending to be sick. Are there any other ones that you can talk about that haven't been published at uh, in the media very, very frequently anyway?
1: That's the key that you said there that I can talk about. Uh, Fair enough. That was uh, that was back in the days when NHL clubs were flying commercially. And uh, so, unfortunately, regular everyday citizens had to be thrown into the plane with us. And, uh, yeah, Bob Miller wrote about that in his book, Tales from the L.A. King's Bench. And that was, uh, it not only involved the guy between Bob and me, but also... A lady sitting right in front of me when I pretended that I was just, I said to Bob as we're getting started, I hope I don't throw up on this one again. And I could see the concern of that guy between us, his face, and Bob looked at him and soberly said, yeah, he ruined a pair of my shoes last trip. Uh, So the guy is starting to look up and around to see if he can find another open seat. There were none. I think we were going Pittsburgh to Boston. And so I'm I'm making the sound effect as if uh, I were in Hollywood Nights, and the plane is pulling out, the jet engines are going full bore, and then all of a sudden they stop. But they stopped while I was in the midst of this. The poor lady in front was uh, almost diving down to the floor with her hands on the back of her head so that I wouldn't ruin her hairdo.
0: In your time in Buffalo, so I'm going to start this with a little bit of a background that Pretty much my favorite food in the world are buffalo wings. And you, having spent a lot of time in Buffalo, the home of buffalo wings, are the wings in Buffalo as good as I think they should be?
1: Well, if you go to the right places, I certainly think so. I would go to Frank and Teresa's Anchor Bar, where it all got started, and then a place uh, several blocks away, which has turned out uh, really to be the favorite of NHLers, and that's Gabriel's Gate. Over in the Allentown section of town, but there, the ability to do these well has spread out uh, very, very well across Western New York, and uh, now we stole from them, and we have a bar here in our uh, our building called Pete and Terry's, named after Terry Crisp and myself, where we also feature buffalo wings and an added attraction: beef on weck, a specialty in two Buffalo. Uh, A Kimmelweck roll, uh, heavily salted and with caraway seeds and the greatest roast beef you can imagine with a dollop or more, if you wish, of horseradish on top.
0: Do you actually have ownership in that little restaurant or did they just name it after you?
1: Named it after us because as I put it out on Facebook, Terry Crisp's sister in Northern Ontario called him almost immediately and said, how dumb can you be, brother? Look how old you are. You're buying a bar. <laughs>
0: Do you get, like, free food there for life for, for naming purposes?
1: Well, I don't know about life, but it's worked so okay so far.
0: Probably can't have it anymore, but at least in theory it would be nice to know. Final two yeah. questions before we let you go. I ask everybody for what I like to call a broadcast horror story. And when I say broadcast horror story, that does not mean an actual Horrific situation, but just a horribly inconvenient situation where everything decided not to work simultaneously, or you had just an awful broadcast view, or something really weird happened that threw off your broadcast. And as long as you've been doing this, as many places as you've been, I'm guessing you have some doozies.
1: Well, there was one time, Kings at Long Island, uh, in the playoffs, And I had requested from Holly Chester III, who was their PR man, that we get Billy Harris as our post-game guest. Now, to set up to do this, I had a headset and a stick mic down in the penalty box. And the cord, though, was so short, I could only hear someone was uh, skating over toward me from across the ice. So I've begun a dissertation introducing Billy Harris only to turn around and find out it's Wayne Merrick. So you talk about (laughs) taking a a step back. uh, There was that. There was a night in Detroit where, again, short cords. Our stick mics were not working in Joe Louis Arena, so we had to wear our headsets. But the headset cords were so short, as we were doing our on-camera, it looked like we were staring at the leaning tower of Pisa uh, off in the distance. We had to uh, tilt to one side. Uh, Things like that happen a lot, uh, or when your audio, particularly in this era now of doing it in packets and digitally, will come back to you somewhat delayed and garbled, and that can throw you off. It's one of those things where you just have to remember to keep on talking, because the listener has no idea what you are contending with.
0: Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to or watch if you have an off day? and uh, both at a national level and maybe some under-the-radar people in your region?
1: Well, I like listening to Mike Keith on the Tennessee Titans. I like listening to John Freeman on Nashville SC broadcasts. Nationally, uh, well, my favorite is now retired, and that's Vince Scully. Uh, And on baseball now, uh, what I will listen to quite a bit, is going to be the St. Louis Cardinals broadcast with John Rooney and Mike Shannon. I mean, when I started following the Cardinals, Mike Shannon was a young, upcoming right fielder. And uh, now here he is, 40-plus years in the booth and curtailing his broadcast schedule. In hockey, I my favorite, along with Bob Miller, was Bob Wilson, who was longtime radio voice of the Boston Bruins. So now I come up with any number of my contemporaries, but uh, the aforementioned John Forslund is certainly one of those, as is John Kelly, who does sound, as the years go on, more and more like his father, Dan Kelly, whom we unfortunately lost at way too early an age back in 1989, as he was the uh, voice of the St. Louis Blues from their second season forward. Their first season voice was a guy named Jack Buck.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was
1: decent, I hear. Yeah, he was pretty darn good.
0: All right, Pete. Well, that is all I have for you today, and I really appreciate you taking the time. If anybody wanted to reach out to you on social media, what is the best way to do that?
1: At Pete Weber Sports on Twitter. That's the way to do it. And Weber has just one B, the real German spelling.
0: All right. Well, that's going to do it once again. Thank you for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast, the voice of the Nashville Predators, Pete Weber.
1: You got it, Logan. I thought you were going to ask me about my egg timer. Well, tell us about your egg timer. Because the title of your podcast would make me think about that. (laughs) And uh, that was a trick I borrowed from Red Barber's book, The Broadcaster's, how he was frustrated oftentimes tuning in broadcasts where they didn't give the damn score. And so he would give it every three minutes whenever the sands ran out. And now it's kind of difficult to find that style of egg timer. So I've had to go on to various... uh, digital versions thereof, and uh, I hope I'm keeping up and answering that question.
0: Do you still use it?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I, I, used, some, some. To, I used to have, uh, I think, a 90-second little hourglass out of like a board game that I would use. Okay. And I feel like now I say it consistently enough that, I a I lost it, and I just never didn't want to buy <laughs> another board game, but uh, I don't need to use it anymore, but uh, I did. I did do something like that.
1: If you have a stopwatch that you can dedicate to that task, that's good, too.
0: All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, we'll let you get back to whatever you have going in this time of social distancing. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests on this show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.